If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Part of my journey of conversion to Catholicism, my road to Rome, was falling in love with the architecture and art of Catholic churches, especially the great cathedrals and basilicas. Now, I was used to very, very large church buildings. I worked in the evangelical megachurch world for a while, and some of those auditoriums and the campuses that surrounded them were actually bigger than almost any Catholic cathedral in the world. I was regularly in megachurch auditoriums with 5, 10, even 15,000 seats in them. Some had office buildings for hundreds of staff and even food courts, like in a mall. The biggest were more like college campuses than anything else. The evangelical megachurch crowd that I worked with, especially the architects that designed them, would brag about how the megachurches were the cathedrals of the modern age, and the megachurch pastors and authors and televangelists, its bishops. But wherever I went in the United States, South America, or Europe, I found myself drawn to visiting the magnificent Catholic cathedrals that were always in the city centers. I wandered through some of the most famous and beautiful and wondered what they meant. So I began to investigate. I discovered bits and pieces about them, why they were built, why they looked the way they did, what the art and architecture represented, and how they were used. As I put those bits and pieces of the puzzle together, they formed a picture of Catholicism. Since then, I've led a lot of people through tours of cathedrals in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe. And I learned that most people know very little about Catholic cathedrals. Of course, the Protestants and evangelicals and secular folks have something of an excuse. But I was surprised how little Catholics know about their cathedrals, even their home cathedrals. So, for everyone who's curious, whether you're Catholic or not, here are 10 more or less random facts about Catholic cathedrals. Number one, a cathedral is a seat. That's literally what the name means. Cathedral is derived from the Greek word cathedra, which literally means chair. And so, in the ancient church and its branches and daughters, Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, and Anglicanism, the technical definition of a cathedral is any church, large or small, fancy or plain, that contains the seat of a bishop from which he exercises his authority as teacher and magistrate of his diocese. In every cathedral, you will see a literal chair up on the raised platform at the front. It's usually positioned near the sanctuary, the space around the altar. But it's important to note that it's not the center of that platform. 
The sanctuary, the altar, the place of Christ's sacrifice is the center. The bishop's seat or the cathedra is secondary and adjacent to Christ. Now, the bishop has an office somewhere near the cathedral where he conducts regular work and business. But the chair is reserved for formal occasions and liturgies where he sits in his vestments and presides in his capacity as Christ's representative, overseer of the diocese. And that distinguishes cathedrals from every other type of church. In some dioceses, the cathedral might not even be the biggest or most historic church building. But if the bishop has his seat there and is thus using it as his seat of governance, then it is the cathedral church of the diocese, which explains why there can only be one cathedral in a diocese. If the current cathedral burns down or is being renovated or a new one is being built, then the cathedral status transfers temporarily or permanently to another church. And it's why most Protestant denominations don't have cathedrals, because most Protestants don't have bishops. They might have a big, important church, but it isn't a cathedral because it doesn't contain the seat of a bishop. Number two, bishops are biblical. Coming out of the Reformation, and ever since, most Protestants have argued that bishops aren't biblical. Show us, they say, where the word bishop is in the Bible. I've had people say that to me, like, take that, drop mic. Well, of course the word bishop isn't in the Bible because bishop is an English word. But the New Testament, which describes the church, was written in Greek, which, of course, doesn't have English words because it was written 2,000 years ago, 16 centuries before Shakespeare started writing in anything that we'd recognize as modern English. But in the New Testament, St. Paul does describe three different church offices. The diaconoi, which translates as servants or ministers. The presbyterioi, which translates as elders. And the episcopoi, which translates as overseers. In English, diaconoi have pretty obviously become the office of deacon. In most Protestant churches, presbyters are church elders and pastors. In Roman Catholicism, presbyters are our priests. But in the ancient church, from which Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy evolved before the Reformation in the 1500s, episcopoi oversaw the affairs of the church. So an episcopos, that would be the singular, was the senior pastor, the teacher, and magistrate over a city and all of the various house churches, Christian associations, and monasteries or convents within it. One of the ways to make sense of the etymology of words is to listen to the consonant patterns. So, listen to that Greek word, episcopoi, or episcop. In Italian, it evolved to bescovo, or vescovo. In Spanish, opispo. In French, avec. In Middle English, from the medieval period, it was rendered biscop. As modern English evolved, the hard K sound softened into an sh sound. So, episcop becomes biscop, which eventually becomes bishop. But they all mean the same thing, the biblical office of overseer in the church. A bishop is responsible for carrying out the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, teaching, 
overseeing correct doctrine, shepherding the flock of the diocese through his priests, and governing the property, finances, affairs, and moral governance of Catholics. So, overseeing things like confirmation and annulment courts. And wherever the overseer, the episcopos or bishop in English, has his seat, is his diocesan cathedral. Number three, all bishops are appointed by the Pope. The very first episcopos, the first overseer, the first bishop, was the fisherman turned follower of Jesus, Simon Peter. Christ appointed him as the leader of the apostles and promised to build his church upon that rock. Now, very quickly in the book of Acts, we see Peter delegating his authority to the other apostles. They become bishops. And as they spread the church throughout the cities of the ancient Roman world, they appoint overseers, bishops, to lead them. But Peter was the rock upon which it would all be built. And Peter went to Rome, led the church there, and died and was buried there under what is now St. Peter's Basilica. When the apostles and their generation died, some aspects of their authority passed on to the next generation in something called apostolic succession. It's why we say we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. But the difference on this point between Roman Catholicism and Greek Orthodoxy, not to mention Anglicanism and other branches of Protestantism, is that Roman Catholics hold that Peter retained his primacy, his leadership of the other bishops. And thus, the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome, maintained primacy over the other bishops. And so, in the Catholic Church, the Pope, which means Father, as the Bishop of Rome, first among equals, appoints all the other world's bishops, and all the other world's bishops are accountable to him as their overseer in shepherding, teaching, and governing the Church. There is no middle management layer. Yes, there are archbishops and cardinals, which we'll explain in a minute, but the only direct overseer for a Roman Catholic bishop is the Bishop of Rome. Number four, parish churches and diocesan cathedrals. The early church, during the missionary era of St. Paul and the other apostles, spread throughout the cities of the Roman Empire. The Christians of a city would gather together for worship, prayer, and other activities with their deacons and presbyters and overseers. But as their numbers grew, and because some of the cities in the Roman world were very large, I mean, Rome had a million residents at the time, smaller groups would be organized in individual neighborhoods or in the suburbs or rural areas just outside the city. They would still be a part of the larger Christian community or church of that city and under the umbrella of leadership of the overseer or bishop of the city. Now, over time, these smaller groupings became parishes, and the citywide or metropolitan area became known as the diocese. The etymology is kind of interesting. The word parish derives through Greek and Latin words meaning sojourning or journeying through a strange land. So, in a sense, a parish is a smaller group of Christians who journey through this life, this valley of tears together. Now, the word diocese is from a late Latin word, diocesis, which means a governor's jurisdiction. 
And that comes from the Greek diokesis, uh, which means an administrative area, or from diokine, which means to keep house or administer. So, the little groups of sojourners living together in neighborhoods or villages that surrounded a city are parishes. And the district around a city, including the countryside, is the administrative diocese from which a bishop shepherds and governs all these little bands. And of course, whichever church is his seat of authority is the diocesan cathedral. Number five, archbishops and cardinals, abbots and superiors. If you follow Catholicism, then you'll see or hear of all these other bigwigs that are running around. Archbishops, cardinals, abbots, superiors. Who are all these people and where do they fit in? Do any of them have cathedrals? Well, let's start with archbishops. During Roman times, as now, some cities were bigger than others and they dominated a Roman province. The Romans considered a big city that influenced an entire province a metropolis. In Greek, it literally means a a mother city. And that concept passed over into the organization of the Roman Catholic Church. So, for example, there were lots of smaller cities in central France during the Middle Ages. Each of those smaller cities had its own diocese, its own bishop, and its own cathedral. But Paris was the center of culture and commerce and communications, etc. It was the mother city, the metropolis of the region. And the Bishop of Paris became a metropolitan bishop or an archbishop. And his diocese became an archdiocese. His cathedral is often called the Metropolitan Cathedral. The city in its orbit became part of an episcopal province. Now, some metropolitan archdioceses are so big, so in the United States, maybe think of New York or Los Angeles, etc., and have so many parishes in the greater metro area that it's impossible for the archbishop himself to properly serve them. So, archdioceses sometimes have what are called auxiliary bishops. Now, these are real bishops but they serve a certain subsection of the metro area as a sort of assistant bishop to the archbishop. An archbishop doesn't have direct authority over the dioceses that are in his larger province. They aren't a management layer like in a large corporation. So an archbishop isn't something like the regional vice president. But they do have significant influence over the dioceses in their region, and because of their proximity to those smaller dioceses, they have an awareness of what's going on in their area on the ground, and they can communicate what's going on to Rome. But still, each individual bishop is accountable directly to Christ and to the Pope in Rome. Now, cardinals are, almost always, bishops that have been given the red hat which means that they are members of the College of Cardinals, the body that votes for a new pope, and they wear red hats. Now, cardinals might be diocesan bishops or archbishops, or they might be relieved of their diocesan responsibilities and brought to Rome to help manage departments in the Vatican, reporting to the pope. But what about religious orders like the Benedictines or the Dominicans or the Franciscans or the Jesuits? Where do they fit in? Well, it's not our topic here, 
But as it relates to bishops and cathedrals, the church has two sort of parallel organizational charts. Both are accountable to the Pope at the top as the successor of Peter. The first chart is what we've been describing, geographically defined parishes, dioceses and bishops and metropolitan archbishops. But the second chain of command that comes down from the Pope is the religious orders. They're each given a charter by Rome, ultimately from the Pope, but they are organized by a system of superiors which is the monastic equivalent of bishops, and provinces, which is something like the monastic equivalent of archdioceses, and communities, think monasteries and convents and abbeys, etc., which are sort of the monastic equivalent of parishes. So, for example, the Dominican order has three provinces in North America, each headed by a provincial superior that acts something like a bishop over the Dominicans in his province. Do religious superiors have cathedrals with seats in them? No. But some orders, like the Benedictines, have abbots who function something like an archbishop, and the abbeys a little bit like a cathedral for the province. Confused? Maybe you are, but I certainly hope not. Because I haven't even gotten into all the weird little exceptions to everything that I just said. Because when you have a 2,000-year-old organization functioning in 24 time zones, there are bound to be lots of exceptions and twists. But we're not going into all of those today, so don't worry. Number six, the chancery. As we've seen, the bishop is the overseer of the diocese, responsible for the threefold office of teaching, shepherding, and governing the affairs of a city and the area around it. And so, that means overseeing the recruitment, assignment, and supervision of priests. It means the administration of schools, hospitals, and various other ministries to the poor and others. It means representing, speaking for, and in some cases defending the diocese and the Catholic Church to secular government. It means overseeing the sacraments in the diocese, including some like confirmation that the bishop participates in personally. It means keeping the sacramental records, recording births and marriages and baptisms and deaths for all Catholics in the diocese. It means church courts and canonical tribunals for processing things like annulments. It means the opening and closing of parishes and the consecration of altars and tabernacles. And, of course, raising and managing finances to make all of this happen. And much, much more. Now, I generally despise secular analogies for church offices and functions. But I'll allow it in this case. In addition to being the shepherd of souls in his diocese, the bishop is its CEO. So, how does he get all of this done? Well, he has help. Every bishop supervises staff and departments where all of the things that we just mentioned take place. And all of those staff and departments work out of a building or a complex of buildings, almost always right next door to the bishop's cathedral. And that building is called the chancery. Chancery is a medieval term derived from the Latin word for an office of scribes and clerks. So, basically... Almost every diocese has a chancery next to its cathedral, 
which holds the offices of the scribes and clerks and officers and department heads and staff people who assist the bishop in the administration of his diocese. And so, as you can imagine, cathedrals are always very busy places, not only for the masses and liturgies and sacraments, but because people are always coming and going to the chancery next door for a thousand different reasons. And that brings up another fun fact. Many, not all, but many cathedrals have a priest known as the rector of the cathedral. As we've seen, the bishop is a pretty busy guy, and he's not always at the cathedral. On any given day, he might be visiting his parishes, traveling to meet with other bishops, or even in Rome. But the masses in the parish must go on every day. And so, a priest is appointed to be the rector, the priest who oversees the day-to-day masses and regular activities within the cathedral. Number seven, statistics. So, how many dioceses and bishops are there? Well, according to the most recent statistics that I could put my hands on, which are about three years old, there are approximately 5,400 Catholic bishops in the world of whom just over 3,000 are diocesan bishops. The others would be bishops who have been given other responsibilities, in the Vatican, for example, or in specialized ministries like military chaplaincy or whatever, or retired bishops that are no longer serving a diocese. In the United States, there are 441 active and retired Catholic bishops who oversee 196 dioceses and archdioceses, which means that there are 196 cathedrals in the United States. The United States has 15 cardinals, six of them who lead archdioceses, five who are retired, and four in other positions. More than a third of U.S. bishops are retired. The remaining 273 active ones include six cardinals, 29 archbishops, 162 diocesan bishops, and 76 auxiliary bishops. Now, bishops submit their retirement to the Pope at the age of 75. About six to eight bishops retire each year and are replaced, so the total number of active bishops remains roughly the same. The bishops themselves make up the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, and are served by a staff of approximately 300 or so lay people, priests, deacons, and religious located at the conference headquarters in Washington, D.C. Looking at these numbers, a couple of things stand out. First, the Pope in Rome is responsible for appointing and supervising 5,400 bishops spread around the globe. Now, obviously he has help, hence the Vatican's own chancery offices. But when we read about management or discipline problems among the bishops in the world, it's easy to see how hard it is for the Pope or even the Vatican to keep close tabs on an organization as large, as complex, diverse, and ancient as the Catholic Church. Second, compared to governments, universities, or corporations, the church has a relatively lean management structure. For an organization of its scope spread as widely in so many locations as it is throughout the world, the number of employees and managers is remarkably small in comparison to secular corporations. So, when we read about management problems and stuff falling through the cracks in the church, 
it's not really a surprise. Number eight, basilicas and cathedrals. Many folks, including many Catholics, confuse basilicas with cathedrals. It's easy to understand why. In the Catholic Church, churches that are special are often designated by the Pope as a basilica. There are two categories, major basilicas and minor basilicas. Now, there are various reasons for declaring a church a basilica. Some are of great historical significance, like some of the major basilicas in Rome. For example, the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls in Rome. The Apostle St. Paul is buried there, and that makes it a very special place, obviously. Or consider the Basilica of Our Lady of the Rosary in Lourdes, France, where the Virgin Mary appeared to St. Bernadette. Or the Basilica of St. Therese of Lisieux that commemorates a great saint and doctor of the church. Or the Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi, where he is buried. These are all magnificent and significant churches. Pilgrims come from all around the world to visit them. But they aren't cathedrals because they don't contain the seat of a bishop. They're overseen by the local diocesan bishop, who might have his cathedral only a short distance away, but not in the basilica. So why not make some of these great basilicas cathedral churches? Well, think of all the things that have to happen in cathedrals and how busy they and the chancery next door become. And then imagine trying to do all of that with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming through the door every year. And then there are the minor basilicas. These are churches recognized for their special beauty or local historical significance. In our own Diocese of Grand Rapids, we have the Cathedral of St. Andrew. And then, just a mile or two away across the river, the Basilica of St. Adelbert, recognized for its beauty and its significance to the Polish immigrant community that gave so sacrificially to build it a hundred years ago. And this leads to one of the greatest misunderstandings in the Catholic Church. St. Peter's Basilica, where Peter is buried with the Vatican Chancery buildings and the museums next door, is not the Cathedral Church of Rome. So, when you visit St. Peter's and marvel at Bernini's Baldacchino or the altar under Michelangelo's dome, you know what you won't see? The actual chair or the cathedra of the Bishop of Rome. Because that's a couple of miles away, across the river, at a much older building the Basilica of St. John Lateran. So, when the Pope is functioning as the Pope of the global Catholic Church, he does so at St. Peter's. But, when he's functioning as the Bishop of the Metropolitan City of Rome, he does so from the Basilica of St. John Lateran. And if you're a member of a Catholic parish in Rome, you're confirmed by your Bishop, the Pope, there. Number nine, in Italy, it's not called a cathedral. Now, crazy idea here, but in Italy, they speak Italian. And by ancient custom, because if you have a culture as old as Italy's, you have a lot of cultural customs, you don't call your city's cathedral a cathedral. You call it a duomo. That's from the Latin word for house, domus. So basically, at some point in the distant Italian past, maybe 1,500 years ago, with the cathedral being the big church that was in the middle of the city, 
where everything important happened and from which everything was administered, the people of the city and surrounding regions started calling it, you know, the house, as in the, the big house, you know, the Domo. And when pilgrims tour around Italy, they get confused. For example, one of the most iconic church buildings in the world is in the center of the city of Florence. And when tourists visit, they buy a ticket to climb to the top of the dome of the Duomo of Florence. I've had people ask me, why is it called the Duomo? And the answer is because that's what Italians call their cathedrals. You see, that building was, still is, the cathedral church of the metropolitan city of Florence. Now, you might be asking, then why isn't the Basilica of St. John Lateran called the Duomo of Rome? And that would be a great question to ask, but the answer would take so long to explain, given the history of that building, that I'm just going to say, because it isn't. Number 10. In the shape of a cross. Not always and everywhere, but traditionally, Roman Catholic churches often have a cruciform floor plan, which is a fancy way of saying that if you look at it from above, they're shaped like a cross. The long part of the cross is called the nave. And if that sounds like the word navel, that's not a coincidence. It's from the same root, meaning ship. Because this is the part where the people of God sit or stand for mass. Because we are in a ship, the ship of St. Peter, sailing through this troubled world of sin on our way to salvation and everlasting life. The two horizontal arms of the cross are called the transepts. Traditionally, very large cathedrals have side chapels or tabernacles in the transepts. The vertical part above the center of the cross is called the apse. Traditionally, the bishop's seat would be located here, as it is in the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. And the center, the intersection of the cross, is usually where the altar is located. It's all centered on the sacrifice of the Eucharist. Once you begin to visit these magnificent cathedrals from our Catholic heritage, you become comforted when you enter another one. There's a familiarity with the layout and the design, and then a, a marveling at the unique characteristics and variations within any particular cathedral. Each of them has a common DNA, like members of a family, but also their own unique identity. So there you go. Now you know why Catholics have cathedrals and a little bit more about them and how they fit into the organization of the Catholic Church. If you haven't, visit your local cathedral for a Mass someday. Or come with me on a tour to see some in the United States, or maybe in the UK or Europe. I'll be leading some more tours soon and would love to open you up to the heritage, the history, the art, the architecture, and the faith of the Roman Catholic Church. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. 
learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.